0: I want to welcome you to our second class of the winter spring semester. Uh, if you got lost or what, well, this is systematic theology at 6:45, I don't know if you took a wrong turn and you're heading somewhere, but we're glad you're here. I want to uh, give a shout out to those who're watching us online, and want to thank our guys, our media guys, for helping us uh, make this possible. I know many folks are watching us at, in their homes in their pajamas. It's good, and uh, I know many. Uh, Tune it in and watch it during during the week, and so we are uh, we're grateful that you that you watch us, and I'm grateful for you guys that are here on uh, on Thursday mornings. I know it's early, uh, but I appreciate your your presence uh, with us. I uh, uh, today's lesson is 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 just absolutely amazing. It's on the doctrine of of Christ. This is Christology proper, the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I've got about eight pages of single-spaced notes, well, almost eight pages, and so we've got a lot we want to cover, and uh, I'm going to be a little more dependent upon my notes today because i just got a lot of things I want to make sure that I communicate and um, just pray in a moment God's uh, favor, God's blessing upon us uh, as we we speak in a moment. On my way in uh, this morning, I listened to this song, and um, wow, it just fits so perfectly with this doctrine of Christology. This is an old hymn. It's remade uh, by a group called uh, Casting Crowns, and maybe you've, maybe you've heard of it. It says, uh, one day when heaven was filled with his praises. You all remember this song? One day when heaven was filled with his praises. Okay. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, and one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a, of a virgin. Dwelt among men, my example is he. Word became flesh, and the light shined among us, his glory revealed. That's pretty good doctrine. That's wonderful theology. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day, oh, glorious day. Wow, I heard that on the way this morning. I thought, that is outstanding. Well, let me pray for you as we get started this morning that God would open our minds, open our hearts, give us a willing spirit to receive everything that He wants us to receive today. Father, we give You praise. We thank You so much for another day to live. Thank You, Lord, for the physical health that You've given us. Thank You for the transportation, the vehicles that You allow us to have to get to this point. Lord, in a world uh, that most of the world is hungry as we speak, most of the world does not have transportation does not have the things that we possess how blessed we are God to live in this country and to whom much is given so much is required so help us to be good faithful stewards Lord of all those things uh, that you have committed unto us God we we just admit today Lord how we love you how we need you how we worship you and how very very much Lord we want to learn more about you not that we could be puffed up with uh, with pride with knowledge, but, Lord, that we would know you better and that we might be able to serve you better and we might be able to help other people come to know you and help others in their discipleship and their walk with you. Holy Spirit of God, would you just speak to me, speak through me as we walk through this amazing doctrine on the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God who took upon human flesh and dwelt among us and lived an amazing life and died for us and arose from the dead. And one day, you are coming, oh, glorious day. And Jesus, we are asking you just to be among us, be with us. Bless those, Lord, who are listening online. I ask you to be with them and all the needs and all the, um, God, all the crying out of their heart to you today that you would bless them, that you would encourage them as well as you encourage us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, this is uh, Christology, the study of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Another hymn I thought about, a song. My hope is built on nothing less than y'all. Help me, Jesus' blood and righteousness. So we're going to look at the doctrine of Christ. And Grudem, in his um, systematic theology uh, book, he's very, uh, very open, very transparent, and honest with us when he says, in describing this particular doctrine, he says, and I quote. The question is, how is Jesus fully God and fully man and yet one person? The infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man. This will remain for eternity, the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe, end of quote. I agree with him. I don't think any of us can be able to wrap our minds around certain doctrines. One of them is the Trinity, and the other one is the humanity deity of Jesus Christ, all summed up in one individual. There are parts of Christology that we're going to talk about this morning. You're going to easily grasp that. You're going to say, I know that. I understand that about Jesus' humanity. I know that. I understand that about Jesus' deity. But there are going to be parts that you're not going to be able to understand. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I don't think any person outside of scriptural writers has been able to fully grasp and understand this doctrine of Christology, of how Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and yet it is absolutely, unequivocally the truth. And so let's look, first of all, we're going to look at Jesus' humanity this morning. And we're just going to walk through some characteristics of Christ as a human being, okay? Now, you got to keep in your mind, keep remembering in your mind that Jesus Christ is a human being, okay? He did not appear to be a human being. He was a human being. He did not just have a human body and a human flesh. He had a human spirit or a human soul. you got to keep in your mind that Jesus Christ is fully human. And then also keep in your mind that He is fully God, the second person of the Godhead, Remember, you have the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Never been a time when the Son of God did not exist. He's co-equal, co-eternal with Almighty Father and Holy Spirit. And so keep that in mind as you begin to wrap your mind around this unique person, Jesus Christ, fully man and yet fully uh, God. Let's talk about the virgin birth. Even though he's fully man, he had quite uh, an unusual birth, which tells us he's fully God because he was born of the Virgin Mary. Matthew 1, 18 puts it like this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, okay? Before they had natural relations as a female and a male. Aren't you with me? Before they came together in that way, she was found with child, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit. So we see right here immediately in in, uh, Matthew's gospel, that Jesus Christ is going to be very, very unique. He's going to have a a human mother, but he's not going to have a human father. Matthew one twenty five says, Joseph did not know his wife in an intimate way until she had given birth uh, to Jesus. you ever thought about the virgin birth? Why is the virgin birth so incredibly important? And why is the virgin birth so incredibly protested? Uh, many people dismiss the virgin birth like they dismiss the uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. They dismiss a trinitarian God. They can't wrap their minds around it. it is so supernatural that they say, "Well, it, it it never could happen because it's just it's so beyond our realm. Then, then surely it didn't happen." And that's that empirical, rational side of our brains just dominating. But the Scripture says it happened. She was. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. But why is it so important? Let me give you three reasons. Uh, These are not in your notes, but you can jot these down if you like. Number one, the virgin birth teaches us that salvation can only come from God. Salvation can only come from God. There is uh, no way that we could reach up to God. And you've heard me say this many many times, but this is the beauty and the uniqueness of Christianity is that God comes to us. It teaches us that salvation comes from God. We could not earn our salvation or our righteous standing before God, so He came to us. He was miraculously born. Okay, Miraculously was He born. And He lived His earthly life. And we see the supernatural dominating His life. And we see it at the inception or at the very beginning of His life in His his birth. Galatians 4.4 says... At the appropriate time, God the Father sent God the Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem us. Okay, So first of all, the virgin birth tells us that this is a supernatural act of God and God is intervening and God is coming. He's coming down to us because there's no way we're going to reach up to Him because He's so holy, so transcendent, so awesome. So He comes to us. Number two, the virgin birth made possible... The uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. The virgin birth makes it possible for there to be a fully human being, also a fully divine being. And the virgin birth is the explanation. How did that that happen? Jesus did not come from heaven riding on a cloud, nor did he have a human father and a human mother like every other person born. In this way, God ordained the coming of His Son into the world, and we see the genius of God in what He has done. Born of a woman, yet fully God, and yet fully man. Okay, so secondly, the virgin birth made possible this uniting, this unique indwelling of this in one person, a full deity and full humanity. Number three, and uh, this is the one I'm, I bet you're more familiar with, the reason why for the virgin birth, it reveals how Christ can be fully human without inherited or original what? Sin. That's right. It teaches us how Christ could be fully human without the original Adamic nature, that sinful, inherited nature of sin because He does not have a human father. He has uh, a unique birth, the birth born of the Holy Spirit. In Luke one thirty five, the Bible says, Um, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, okay? He's talking to Mary. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. A divine, never-to-be-repeated way that God suspended the normal process of conception and also in such a way that Jesus did not inherit sin from a father stay with me, nor from Mary, his mother. Okay, so some say, well, if, if Jesus had that kind of uh, birth, then surely his mother did because um, Mary must have had some amazing uh, conception. Help me now, what do the Roman Catholics call this? The immaculate conception because Jesus was perfect. Therefore, uh, Mary must have been perfect, and now you're getting into Mariology, the study and the worship of, of Mary. Um, well, I don't believe that. I, I believe she was special, absolutely. Uh, the Bible says in the, the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, 46-45, all generations will call me blessed. She is the mother of our Lord, if you will. But I can't go along with Roman Catholic dogma that says she too had an immaculate conception. Uh, that Mary, not, not just Jesus, uh, did not have a sinful nature or inherited sin. Uh, but I don't, I, don't, I don't see that taught in Scripture. But I do, t- I do see Jesus as he is born of the Virgin Mary without inherited or original sin. So that's his virgin birth. What an a unique, what an amazing doctrine. Uh, number two, or B, is we're going to look in Christ and his humanity. We're going to look at uh, his weaknesses and limitations. Now, don't get mad. Don't, don't throw something at me. Some of you are going, wait a minute. Were Jesus weak? Jesus limited? Oh, I don't know. No, stay with me now. He is fully God, and he's what? He's fully man. Luke 2.52 says he grows in wisdom. He grows in wisdom and in stature. Hilakia, the word for stature, could simply refer to his height. He literally grew, like all humans grow, in height, weight, wisdom, etc. All right? John 4.6, he became tired. In 1928 of John, Jesus became thirsty. In Matthew 4, too, he became hungry. Those are all characteristics of what? A human being. Human beings get tired, they get thirsty, they get hungry. In Matthew, what is he doing in the, in the ship there while the disciples are freaking out with the storm? What is Jesus doing? Well, why is he sleeping? Because well, he's tired. He's fully God, but he also is a fully man. He had a human body. But after his resurrection, he has a different type of body. In this resurrection body, he eats fish in Luke 24, 42. And in this body, he ascends back to the Father, Luke 24, 51. He had the same kind of body we do before his resurrection. And one day in heaven, we will have the same type of resurrection body he has right now. So he took upon himself human flesh, with all of its weaknesses, with all of its limitations, but not with all of its sinfulness, okay? Jesus had a human mind. He increased in wisdom, Luke two fifty two. And in his human nature, he had a mind like ours in that uh, he neither... Uh, uh, and in his human nature, he had a mind like ours. He, listen to this, nor the angels knew, only the Father knew the time of his return. Remember that? Remember that scripture, Mark 13, 32? No man knows the time when the Son of Man will come again, not even the Son, nor not even the angels. Now, when you hear a scripture like that, it should make you scratch your theological noggin, but try to keep it in context. Try to keep that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We're going to come back to that verse in a moment, okay? So stay with me. He had a human soul. He had a human emotions. Scripture says that he was troubled in his soul in John 12, 27 and in his spirit in John 13, 21. He had human emotions because Jesus wept, did he not? He marveled, he was troubled, and yet he never sinned, Hebrews 5, 8. His responsibilities increased increase through more and more responsibilities. He was tempted, just like all humanity is tempted, but in Hebrews four fifteen he never sinned. Okay another factor pointing to Jesus weaknesses or humanity is that in his own hometown of Nazareth they viewed him for the first 30 years of his life as what as simply a human being. You ever thought of it like that? Even his own brothers with me? Even his own brothers didn't worship him. They they were aghast. They were absolutely shocked that he said that he was the son of God. But they're like, man, we've known you for all your life, 30 years. And that points to his humanity, that he was a full human being. Now, I'm stressing this because there is a heresy. Uh, there is a doctrine in the early church called docetism. It's from the Greek word dokeo, and it means to appear because... Human nature, the physical universe, is inherently evil, and God could not come and take upon himself human nature because he would automatically become evil, so he only appeared to have a human body. That is called docetism. It's just a kind of a figment, a mirage. Jesus really did not have a human body. He just couldn't because because he's God, but he did. And we have to keep that in mind. Let's talk about Jesus' sinlessness. Okay, This is C in your outline. Uh, We looked at human weaknesses, limitations. Now we're talking about his sinlessness. Uh, Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, but he did not sin. Luke 4.13. In John 8.12, he said, I am the light of the world. He is pure, without blemish, without any spot. John 8.29, Jesus was doing the Father's will. He was always doing the Father's will. All that the Father wanted him to do. That's what I love about the Gospel of John. Whenever I read John, throughout those 20-plus chapters, you, you always see Jesus in absolute, complete relationship with the Father. Never sinning with his mind, never sinning with his hands, never sinning with his tongue. That all-besetting sin for all humanity, you know, that little instrument in there, he never, he never did. John 18, 38, Pilate says, I can find no. There's no fault in you. There's no fault in you. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. Hmm. In the temptation narratives and the synoptic gospels, Satan tempts him. Remember that? Forty days and forty nights. And uh, he tempted him to bypass the plan that the Father had for him, which was to go to the cross and die. A plan of obedience, uh, a plan of surrender to go through the crucible of extreme pain and suffering even to the point of death on the cross. And what Adam and Eve could not do, uh, Jesus, Jesus did. They could not remain sinless. They could not resist the temptation. In the first Adam, we all die, but in the second Adam, in Christ, we uh, can live. Uh, he obeyed even in the face of extreme temptation. In Grudem, I thought it was very interesting here, he juxtaposes the temptation of Adam and Eve with food and Jesus with food. Remember, the enemy says, if you're the Son of God, transform these stones into what? Into bread, okay? What a viable, valid temptation if Jesus is fully human, okay? Because I don't know if y'all have ever done a 40-day fast or not. I have, and I want to tell you something. I hope God never asks me to do that again. I'm serious because I used to weigh about 15 pounds more than I weigh today, and it was I think 10 of it was right here in my face as I look at some of these old pictures. But I, I was so burdened for the church that I was pastoring. And, and much like our church, it was, it was very much in, in debt. And so I just went on this 40-day fast of juice and so forth. And I'm like, wow, I can't imagine. But Jesus, like Moses, didn't even drink juice or, or, or water. I mean, this is a supernatural, miraculous thing that, that he did. But listen to this, this, con- this um, comparison of their of their temptation. They both were tempted with food. Jesus had not eaten and was very hungry. He turned the water into wine. He multiplied the loaves and the fish, which tells us that he could have turned that into a sustenance. Um, but Adam, he gave in, he ate the food. Jesus, he he did not. He did not sin. He did not fall into a temptation. Could Jesus have sinned? Ah. Ah, you're going to go there, Brother Danny. I got to go there. That's part of teaching this class is to go to those doctrines that make you scratch your head. It's called the doctrine of impeccability. I know that's a big word. I-M-P-E-C-C ability. I-M-P-E-C-C-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Impeccability, meaning not able to sin. So the question is, could Jesus have sinned? Uh, many say absolutely, and many say absolutely not. Those who say absolutely, they argue, they say, well, if he could not have sinned, then the, sin, the temptations were not valid, and that they couldn't have been valid if, if he could never had the capacity to sin. But on the other hand, Mr. Grudem, Grudem, including, says, no, he never could have sinned because God cannot be tempted. Or God, He does not tempt, and He He cannot sin, even though He's even though He was tempted. So let's talk about this right here. Uh, Hebrews four fifteen says He's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Uh, James one thirteen. There it is. God cannot be tempted uh, with evil. Some argue and distinguish again that this must have mitigated His the. the the temptation because if he could never have sinned he was hungry he was thirsty and yet he overcame some argue for impeccability that jesus could not have sinned for it is impossible for god to be tempted with sin and jesus is god but on the other hand people say but he was also fully human <laughs> and in his human nature he could have sinned and others say but he could not because in those moments the divine nature is more is more prominent again this is this is interesting Uh, He says this is a mystery and a paradox, but it's erroneous to say that Jesus was tempted, and yet God cannot be tempted with sin. He says he's fully human, fully God, existed in one person. And it's interesting, he gets around the dilemma this way, and and I'll I'll tell you kind of where I come out on this in just a moment, but Grudem says Jesus experiencing hunger and thirst was experienced only in his human nature... But the temptation to sin would be a moral act, and that would have included his divine nature, so therefore he could not have sinned. And I scratch my head, I'm going, oh goodness. Therefore, if Jesus had sinned, it would have included both his humanity and his divinity. God would have sinned, and he would have ceased to be God, so therefore God could not have even had the possibility of sin. I quote Gruden when he says, the union of his human and divine natures in one person prevented him from sinning. So, I don't know. I, I, I like to tell y'all, I, I like to read what everybody says and this doctrine of impeccability. Is, it is a hard one for me because if, if we say Jesus could not have sin, then in my mind, it, it does, in, in some ways, it lessens the sev- severity of, of the sin. But on the other hand, if you say... He indeed was tempted, you have to deal with the James one hundred thirteen passage which says, quote, God cannot be tempted with evil. Or you may do what Grudem does and say, Well, he cannot be tempted because we're talking about the divine nature, and then you may say, But he could have been tempted, genuinely tempted, to sin and to commit the sin in his human nature. (laughs) Isn't that fun? And I I bet if we were to poll you guys, it'd probably be something like 60-40. I'm just guessing. 60-40, 60% in here would probably say, yes, it was valid, and he could have sinned. And I would say 40% would probably say, yes, he was tempted, it was valid, but he could not. It was impossible for him uh, to sin. Interesting. Okay, D, the necessity of Jesus' humanity. All right, look at D on your outline there. We've got four, and this is really interesting, and, and, and Grudem does such a good job summarizing The necessity, why did Jesus have to become uh, a man? All right, let's look at uh, these four reasons. Number one is He is our representative. He is the representative who personifies obedience, complete obedience. He represented us to God and obeyed God the Father. Grudem says, and I quote, Jesus had to be a man. In order to be our representative and to obey God in our place perfectly, okay? Number two, he had to be a man because he had to be our substitute for sin. As a man, he died in our place as our substitute. He paid the penalty uh, for our sins, the penalty that we owed. Jesus, not, I love this statement here, this is so good. Jesus did not come as an angel because God did not come to save angels. That's a good word. That's worth getting up at 4:45 or whatever it was this morning I got. Jesus did not become he did not come to us as an angel because God did not come to save angels. He came to us as a man because God came to save mankind. Hebrews 2:17 uh, talks about this. Therefore in all things he had to be made. Are you with me? The scripture says he had to. He had to be made like his brethren not the angelic beings, but his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, here it is, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brethren so he could take upon himself the sin nature of the world and become its helissimios, helisias. It is this word propitiation where he takes upon himself the anger and the wrath of God poured out on sinful humanity. Jesus Christ absorbs it all, and he could not do that as in any other form or fashion. He had to become a man, and he did that, and he bore the wrath of God. And he took all of our junk and all of our sin and all of our immorality and all of our adultery and all of our lying and all of our sin. Jesus took it on himself, and he who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I get to go to heaven. What a gospel. What an amazing exchange that he had to become like me, he became like me, he took all of my sin, he took it to the cross, and I don't have to bear it, I get to go to heaven. Wow, what an amazing gospel. Number three, he became our example and pattern in life. Uh, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father and gave us uh, the example, the template on how to live a life completely sold out, uh, to God the Father. He didn't shout from the heaven going, okay, here's what I need you people to do down there. Uh, and then and, and, and the law is insufficient, okay? We, we're not going to obey the law. And so God, in the fullness of time, just came right among us and said, okay, here I am. Here's what I want you uh, to do. He had to be human in order to provide us an example. 1 Peter 2, 21. You see this on the screen? For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a typos, I think is the Greek word there, a type, an example that you should follow in his steps. So he is our representative obedience. He is our substitute, our vicarious substitutionary death. He had to become man in order to do that. Number three, he's our example. And number four, uh, he is our high priest. Okay. A priest is someone who represents man to God and represents God to man. And Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so he completely, perfectly fulfills this role as our high priest. Hebrews 2.18 says he he suffered and he was tempted. And now he is able to help us and aid us in our temptation. The humanity of Christ. What a a wonderful doctrine. All right, we're going to look now at at the deity of Christ. Uh, the deity of Christ will begin with some titles of, of deity. Um, some titles of deity. You may want to uh, jot these down in your, in your notes because these are some words, divine words, that are normally attributed to the Father, if you will, but they're going to be attributed to Jesus. And then there are some unique words that apply only to Jesus. And uh, let me give you a little a quiz. Um, I think 84 times... Jesus refers to himself in one particular way, and it was his favorite way to describe himself. The son of what? Son of man. That was his favorite self-designation, uh, son of man, 84 times. He's also called son of God. He's called Theos. He's called Kyrios. He's called the great I am. And all of those attribute, uh, are attributed to deity. So let's, let's walk through these. Uh, John 1, 1 says, And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was theos. The Word was theos. The Word was, uh, was God. Okay? Another example is Romans 9, uh, 5. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came... Who is overall the eternally, are y'all reading the same thing I am? The eternally blessed God. Amen. I mean, there it is. Romans 9 5, Jesus is unequivocally called Theos. He is called Almighty God. Of course, Isaiah 9 6 says the coming Messiah will be called the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, the next, that's Theos, that's T H E O S. We'll give you some Greek this morning. Ready? T H E O S. E-O-S, Theos, God, Jesus is referred to. Number two is is Kyrios. and That's K-Y-R-I-O-S. K-Y-R-I-O-S. Obviously, that's that's the English spelling of it, Kyrios. 6,814 times Kyrios is used in our Bible and is translated Lord. And uh, you see this in the Greek Old Testament especially. The Greek Old Testament is the Septuagint. And that's the Bible that, the, that Jesus and the disciples had. They had that Septuagint. They had the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And over 6,800 times in that Old Testament, that Greek word, Kyrios, is used, and it always refers to God. But when you come to the New Testament, that same word is applied to... Hello? It's applied to Jesus. And you see that, and I'll give you a couple examples. And that's uh, Luke 2.11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the... That word is always used for God. It's never used of a mortal, but it's used for Jesus. Uh, He is Christ the Lord. He is God come in the flesh. He is equated. He's on the same plane and equal uh, with Almighty God. We recognize that as good doctrine. That was amazing heresy in the first century, okay, if you didn't believe. If you, weren't, if you didn't accept this incarnation, uh, th- then you, you totally dismissed this. You were, you were saying, this guy is a heretic. He's putting himself upon the same nature as God himself. And it was the truth. He was. Matthew 3:3, 3, 3, John the Baptist says, Prepare ye the way of the Kyrios, the Lord. And of course, Hebrews chapter 1, wonderful verses there in 8 through 12, clearly portrays the Son as the eternal Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Another uh, title for Christ that reflects his deity is this title, I am. It's all caps, ergo I me in the Greek. It's I and then a capital A and a capital M in Exodus 3. God told Moses, I am who I am. In John chapter 8, 57 and 58, notice what, notice what Jesus said. He said, I am. And so they they knew immediately what he. Then the Jews said to him. You're not 50 years old, and and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them most assuredly, I have. You roll that next one, 58. I say to you, before Abraham was, notice how it's all caps. Because Jesus is saying, I am God. And it wasn't lost on them because, I didn't quote the rest of it, because as soon as he said that, what did they do? They're picking up a stone. They're going to kill him because that's blasphemy because he said that he was literally a God, uh, but, but he was because this is one of his titles of, of deity. And then these next two, Son of Man, uh, 84 times uh, in the Gospels. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 talks about this unique future figure who will come and the eternal kingdom will be delegated over to him and um, Matthew twenty six sixty four, I think we have uh, that one on the screen. Matthew 26, here it is. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, capital P, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Immediately, those who knew their Bibles, they knew. He was quoting Daniel chapter 7, where you have this ominous, unknown figure who's going to be given the entire world. And Jesus said, by the way, that's me. (laughs) And again, we look at that and say, man, that's great theology. Man, way to connect uh, the New Testament with the Old Testament. But that great theology got him killed and got all of his disciples killed because their greatest accusation against Jesus was uh, he he says that he's God. He says that he is literally God uh, come to earth. The last one is son of God. The, this this terminology "son of God" it makes him eternal, coequal uh, with God Himself, and you see this in Hebrews one, Philippians two, Colossians one. Uh, let, me, let me give you a good example: is Hebrews one three, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Now this is a, this is talking about God, okay, eternal God, and Jesus is the brightness of His glory. And he is the express image of his person. And by the way, the words express image there is character in the Greek. Character. It's where we get our English word character. It it is the very character, the very nature, the very essence of of God. Um, He upheld all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So... Here Jesus is. Here are some of his titles of deity, okay? Uh, we looked at his humanity, and, and we know he was fully human because he got tired, he got, he got hungry, he, he, he slept, he had emotions. The Bible says on a couple of occasions Jesus actually wept. Y'all remember that? When, when Lazarus died and he saw the devastation of death on people, and, and the Bible says he wept, and then as he's looking over Jerusalem, he, the Bible says he weeps for them. So we know he's fully man. But he's also fully God because of these titles that are given him. God, Lord, I am, Son of Man, Son of God. Okay? So let's look at some of the attributes of, of Jesus that talk about, the, uh, uh, talk about his deity, some of his uh, attributes. First of all, we see some of his omnipotence in the New Testament. When he calmed the storm in Matthew 8, 26 and 27, that was pretty impressive, wasn't it? <laughs> Peace. Waves, be, be still. Or how about when he walks on the water? How many humans can do that? You say, well, one. He didn't last very long, did he? I mean, Peter, he, he got out there for a little bit, but no, Jesus got out there and he stayed out there. And They thought it was a phantom, a ghost. No, it's God. It's Christ. There he is. So he calms the sea. He multiplies bread and fish in Matthew 14, 19. And he even turns the water into what? first miracle, the very first public miracle that Jesus did, of course, apart from his virgin birth, I'm talking about his ministry. The first recorded miracle is when he turned the water into wine. Verse 11 says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, all right? And his disciples believed in him. They believed in him because he had miraculous power, Okay. He, he's doing things that nobody else has ever done. He's saying things that nobody else has ever said. And then they, they continue to believe in him because now he starts raising the dead, he starts healing lepers, he starts calming the sea, and they're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. You are who you say you are because you are manifesting it with these, uh, with these miracles. Okay? He is seen as uh, eternal in statements like John eight fifty eight. I am in Revelation twenty two thirteen, 13, uh, where it talks about, uh, in Revelation 1, 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the, help me, and the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. I, I, I've, I've always existed. I, I've always been the second person of, of the Godhead. It was just recently that I took on human flesh. That's what he could say. It, it was just recently that I took on human flesh, but he talking about the pre-existence of the eternal Son of God. What about his omniscience? Again, this is where it gets interesting to me. I was, can I just go ahead and tell you all this? I don't understand this completely, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. All right? Um, he is omniscient in that he knows what people are thinking. In Mark 2, 8, remember that? I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking, and this is the healing of the, uh, the paralytic. How does he know what they're thinking? Well, he's omniscient. He, he's fully God. I'll give you another example. It says in John 6, 64, it says he knew, he knew what was in the hearts of people. He knew who would believe and who would betray. He's omniscient, okay? In fact, in John sixteen thirty, the disciples said, quote, you know all things. So that points to his omniscience. Remember early on we talked about some of the attributes of God, some of the characteristics of God is he's omnipotent. Uh, He's omniscient. What was the third one? You remember? He's omnipresent. Well, do we see that in Jesus? Well, actually, actually we do. He says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, help me. "Ah, There I am in the midst of them. Talking about his omniscience. All right. His divine sovereignty is clearly seen in his ability to forgive sins. Mark 2, 5 through 7. He so, said, Brother Danny, what do you mean when you said you don't understand completely? That makes complete sense to me. Jesus knows all things. But then he said, I don't know when I'm coming again. Not even the angels, but the Father. So, again, you've got to keep in your mind, and this is the only way I can wrap my little mortal mind around it, that he is fully God and he is a fully man. Okay? What about his sovereignty? Well, I mentioned it, to forgive sins. Mark 2, 7. Who could forgive sins but God? Um, Jesus laid down his life and then uh, he raises himself from the dead, John 10, 17, and 18. He's worthy of worship. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Every knee will bow, every tongue is going to confess, everybody's going to bow down to this person, this second person of the Godhead, this Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 5, 13, he is worshiped forever and ever and ever. He will be worshipped in heaven. And by the way, there are going to be people from everywhere on planet earth. Not everybody on planet earth, absolutely. Most of the people on planet earth won't because most are going to reject him. But there are going to be some from every tribe, nation, ethnic group, background, nationality. There are going to be some and they're going to be at the throne. And guess what they're going to be doing? They're going to be worshipping him. You say, well, I don't know if I like that. You didn't get a vote on that. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. Why shouldn't we? Did he not create us? Did he not become one of us and die for us? Did he not arise from the dead? Did he not cleanse us from our sin? I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward. I can, I can hardly wait the day that I move into his presence and just bow before him and sing Hosanna, sing blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and just worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will do that, uh, not because he's, he's a normal guy, but because he's God. Okay? What about Philippians 2, 7, when you're talking about the deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, it, this passage is called the kenosis passage. Uh, kenosis means to empty. All right? Remember the, the text, Philippians 2, 7? I don't think I put it on the screen, but I think you, uh, you probably uh, know it. Um, did not consider uh, equal to God uh, robbery, uh, but emptied himself, okay, and became. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when the Bible says Jesus emptied himself? Did he empty himself of his deity or did he do something else? What, what does that mean, Philippians 2 7. Well, by the way, as you can imagine, there's a whole page, 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 just like impeccability. Page, 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 page. I mean, you've got you got people on both sides saying different things, but to me, this one's not that very difficult. I, I, I think it could be, best be summed up. Jesus never ceased being fully God. He laid aside some of his privileges, okay. but he never laid aside his nature. All right? He laid aside some of his privileges when he left the throne and worship of heaven and came to earth. Uh, the emptying or the giving up of his reputation in, in Philippians 2 is equated with... <clears throat> Him coming in the form of man, all right? Does that help you? He's emptying himself of, of privileges, of royalty, of worship in heaven so that he could come here. He never said, okay, I want to cease being God, and now I'm just going to become a man. No, you can't say that. And some people do say that, by the way. Uh, they, they have a problem with the supernatural. It's called the kenotic theory. And that's where they, some liberal theologians say, well, you see, he really wasn't God after all because, well, even if he was, he, he emptied himself of all of that. But that's, that's, that's not what Paul is saying. Uh, and I quote Grudem when he says, The emptying includes change of role and status, but not essential attributes or nature. He's fully human, fully God. Colossians 1.19 says, In Jesus all the fullness of God dwelled bodily. Remember that? And in Colossians 2.9, In Him all the fullness of deity, a deity dwells. Okay, So we're talking about... The, The deity of Christ, where are we on the outline here? We looked at some titles. We looked at some of the attributes of deity omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, sovereignty, eternality, worship, ability to forgive sins. These are all attributes of deity. Okay? And by the way, he's the same one who wept, he's the same one who got tired, he's the same one that um, got thirsty. Hey, is this amazing? Is this not amazing? And no wonder Grudem says, this, this is the most majestic doctrine in all the universe, and it's one that we will never understand. And he goes so far to say in his book, he goes, we will never understand. Not even heaven will we understand it. It's just beyond us mortals. We, we, we can never get our minds completely around how that one individual was fully God and fully man, And you you can just embrace it by faith, or you can just debate it and try to rationalize it, and it will destroy you, okay? You you will be destroyed if you try to figure it out and say, well, I'm not going to embrace it until I figure it out completely, okay? Well, good luck, because you're not going to figure it out. I mean, Augustine, not going to figure it out. You know, some of these great theologians, um, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, these guys would say, no, 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 we we never figured that out. We just embraced it because... It's, it's true, okay? That's my sermonette for the, for the morning here. All right, so let's talk about the incarnation, the, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Deity, humanity combined in one, in one person. Again, some say it's a myth because it's impossible to understand that. It's like the virgin birth could have never happened. It's just too miraculous for me. Says. It's kind of like the inerrancy of Scripture. I mean, really? God wrote a book, didn't have any errors in it, God really raises people from the dead? God really became a man? No, it's too, too much for me. And, and, and many people dismiss it because of their anti-supernaturalism bias. Okay? Too empirical, too rational. Can't, can't figure that out, so it must... Ooh, isn't that interesting? I can't figure it out, therefore it must not be true. That didn't say anything about God. That says something about you. It's so amazing, so miraculous. Well, I can't understand it. Nobody can understand it. Therefore, it must not be true. Mercy. It is true. Um, Just because we don't understand, as I said a moment ago, doesn't mean it's not true. A paradox, amen. Contradiction, no way. Paradox, yes. Fully God, fully human in one person. Well, the early church, we're going to go back through the early church. Remember, um, I think earlier on in this class, we talked about the seven ecumenical councils from Nicaea, A.D. 325, to second Nicaea around A.D. 700. There were seven ecumenical councils, and each one of them just kind of grew in their understanding of this whole humanity deity of Jesus. I mean, we're talking years and years as the early church. Um, But the one... The Chalcedonian uh, Council of 431. This one is is where it just it just leaps off the page, and they it is like the early church. They just they are developing this, and it is so so rich. So, in fact, it's the first time that they actually use the word incarnate. And so, the Nicene Creed obviously affirms this deity humanity, but the Chalcedonian uh, Creed of 451. Okay, it's in the process. So you're going to have these different. Uh, uh, individuals in, in the church are going to pop up, and good luck to me pronouncing their names, amen, this morning. But they're going to pop up, and they're going to challenge this deity humanity of Jesus, all right? And here's how their uh, challenge will go. Apollinarianism. It's named after a teacher by the name of Apollinaris, Bishop of Laodicea in 8361, okay? He said, now stay with me. This can get a little bit confusing, but, but stay with me. He said... Jesus had a full human body, but he did not have a human soul or human spirit. Okay? He just didn't. The church says, no, you're wrong. They affirm that Jesus was fully human. He, he he wasn't partial human. He was human flesh, and they would argue things like, why did Jesus cry? You know, why did Jesus experience righteous anger? You can't attribute that just to flesh, okay? Human, human soul. Number two, Nestorianism. Uh, Nestorius is a bishop in Constantinople in A.D. 428. He said, okay, I got it figured out. Jesus was two separate persons. And he he was a human person and he was a divine person. But he's not one who's human and divine. Uh, But never in Scripture do we see the two natures talking to one another. And that's what Nestorius would teach. He would say, well, God would say to Jesus the human, how are you doing today? And Jesus the human would reply back to God, but you, don't never, you never see that in Scripture. Jesus always refers to himself as I, not we. <laughs> okay? I say, not, not we say. Now, the times that we is applied to Jesus, that's, he's talking about the Father or the Spirit in him. But he's never talking about this schizophrenic duality of personality. Are, are you with me? And the story is said, well, it, 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 he has to do that. But they said, no, it's not true. Monophysitism, however... Monophysitism, Physitism. Or Eutychianism. Eutychianism. How's that one? That's easier. Yeah, right. Eutychus is this guy who taught in A.D. 454. This is his name, Eutychus. He's literally a teacher. He leads a monastery in Constantinople. He taught that Nestorius got it wrong. Jesus did not have two natures. He had one nature. And the human was absorbed into the divine so that you actually got a third nature. (laughs) You know, you you don't have fully God, fully man. No, 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 you can't have that because we don't understand that. And Astoria says, okay, so you got fully God, and then you got fully man. You got two separate entities. And Euclidus comes along and he says, no, 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 you, you got it wrong. It's still one person, but here's the deity... And here's the humanity way down here. And so what he does is he, he lessens that. It kind of leans toward that docetism. Well, he just appeared to be fully man, but, but he wasn't. And by the way, the early church in every one of these instances evaluated that, embraced um, the, the teaching as far as listening to it, and then categorically, unequivoc- unequivocally, they rejected it. And it's rejected seen in the Chalcedonian definition in 451. And I quote here, The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. Boy, that's that's deep for 730, but let me me read it again. Chalcedonian, Chalcedonian definition. Here's the statement, affirms Jesus was fully God and fully man. Quote, The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. I don't know about y'all, but my mind is just like, it's just, it's just spinning around. And so I think I'll, I think I'll take a break. I think we'll, we'll stop here for just a minute, and, uh, and we'll entertain some, some comments and some questions if you, um, if you have some. Uh, if not... Uh, We'll, we'll, let you, we'll let you out uh, a little bit early. Oh, I got to page 6, by the way. I uh, still got 7 and 8, but we'll, we'll wrap that up uh, uh, next time. Uh, so we're talking about the, the doctrine of Christ, uh, the humanity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. Um, it, it's just one of the, the pinnacle doctrines of the, of the Christian faith. Uh, it, it's like the Trinity, you know. It's, it's, it's just up there. It's just one of those prized, awesome, unique uh, doctrines that we cherish. Uh, Nobody else has this, by the way, if you're interested. If you want to study other religions and other prophets and priests and people, nothing ever comes close to to this. Hey, can you not agree? When God does it, He does it right. He does it. And it's mysterious, and and yet it's understandable, and it's very demanding. My life, my all is what what I bring to, to Christ. Any comments real quick before we uh, before we go or any, any questions that you might have? Yes, your question, Tom. Yeah, for you on the Internet there, uh, Tom Collier asked a good question about the temptation of Jesus. Um, you know, what, was it just inward? Was it outward? How viable was it? Yeah. Grudem says, to your question, absolutely. Absolutely both. Intrinsic, valid, viable, inward, outward absolutely was he tempted in that way because he references Hebrews when it says he was tempted in all ways that we are. And we are tempted that way. We are tempted. That, that, that temptation you describe, I get that, and, and that really wasn't, that's not a valid temptation to me even though somebody, uh, temp, somebody may tempt me to smoke marijuana, you know, or they may tempt me to, uh, to do something. I'm like, that, is, that is really not even a valid temptation because I know that I will never, never do that. Uh, but now, if, if the enemy comes and says he tempts me to say, "Oh, you know, well somebody said that. Aren't you a little bit upset about that? And don't you want to talk about them?" Now I'm like, "Oh, well, come on now, that's strong. I'm, I'm tempted to be mad. I'm tempted to retaliate. And I'm tempted to to gossip. Not that y'all would ever do any of that. I mean, I need to see those eight halos around y'all's head. So, um, so yeah, that's that's the way he would he would answer it. I think it's uh, it's valid. Anybody else? Yes, sir. The most helpful comment that's good. That's very good. I'm going to try to. Say what he just said. I don't think I can do it as eloquently as he just did, but um, he said the most helpful thing he heard today was talking about the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus is the definition of a priest. A priest is someone who represents God to man and someone who represents man to God, and Jesus was perfectly both. He perfectly represented God, being God, to us, and he perfectly was human, representing us humans to God. He said that's. That that helped him more than, than anything. So, did I get that right, brother? Did I summarize that? Okay, good. Now, anybody else before we pray and uh, and, and and go go forward? Uh, w- one of the things I'm thinking about doing, and uh, I'm close to doing this. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to do this. Is uh, you know I'm going to India here in a couple weeks, and it'll take me out two Thursdays. So what I'm thinking about doing is just Going through the whole lecture and not skipping a beat and just you watching it on the, on the screens. See, and if I do that, you can come and sleep and I'd never know you were sleeping, you know. I, but, but it'll be just um, the only thing, the reason I hesitate about doing that is because one of those lectures is on election and predestination. But in a way, that's really cool because I don't get to answer your questions. <laughs> just, I can just lecture on the hardest doctrine in all the Bible, according to me. Uh, I could lecture on it. And, uh, but what I'll do is I'll be, I think I'll be fair. I think if you're a Calvinist, you'll say that was fair. You, you fully describe, not fully, I, I can't fully describe anything, but you aptly describe what a Calvinist believes. If you're Arminian, you'll say that was fair. You honestly said what um, uh, Jacob Arminius would have said or would have believed. And then you'll see my little hybrid approach. You'll see kind of where Brother Danny comes down on it. And, and I'll come down where I feel convicted to come down. I won't come down as far as, as Calvinists want me to come, but I won't come down as far as the Arminians want me to come. I just come down where I'm, where I'm at peace, where I feel. And Isn't that all you can ask of a person? Isn't that right? Wrestle with it best you can. And under your convictions of the scriptures, land where you, where you feel like you need to land. So I'm, I'm very, very fascinated with that. And I've studied, studied very, very hard last year on that lecture. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to, to presenting it to you and making some of you mad. So it'll be, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. I'll probably make all of you mad. All right, well, we'll, we'll pray and we'll, we'll go. I'll hang around for a few minutes if you want to ask some, some questions or comments, and then we'll, uh, we'll go. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to worship you with our minds. Thank you, God, for allowing us to think about things we may not normally think about or digest or dissect like we did today, but thank you, God. Uh, Our desire, Lord, is to to be all that we can be for you, to let our hearts and our minds and our wills, our emotions, all be under the... uh, the lordship of Christ. And so we, we come to you as an act of worship, Lord, not, um, not to impress, not to try to say we know more than somebody else. It's just, Lord, we love you. And we, we want to know as much about you as we possibly can so that we can worship you more fully and we can help others, Lord. We can help maybe answer some questions that others may have as we sanctify you, the Lord God, in our hearts. Always ready to give an answer. Uh, to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us with meekness, Lord, with meekness and humility. Lord, I pray that you bless my brothers and my sisters as they depart from this place, as they go their way. I ask you to bless those online, Lord, who are listening, who are about to uh, begin their day. Uh, Lord, we do ask you to uh, help us be more like you. Uh, Help us, God, to take advantage of every opportunity you give us today to speak a good word about Christ and to also encourage those we come in contact with. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.